short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima. Ich bin ein Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this. Welcome back to the Cold War episode 63. How are you, buddy? Fine. As I like to think of it, hour two in this three and a half, four hour long orgy of information. In our last episode, we did a bit of a bio on Harry Shit for Brains Truman. And this, no. this uh, uh, episode, we're getting back to basically where the last one left off. Harry is... Now the president, Mm -hmm. what happens next? Well, a couple of people moved quickly to cement their influence with the new president. One of those was Justice James Burns, former senator, congressman, Supreme Justice, etc., etc., confidant to uh, Roosevelt, and as you may recall, thought... He was going to be the vice presidential candidate on the 1944 ticket with FDR, but Harry got the job instead. Imagine that. Like, it should have been me, is what Burns is thinking. I should be the fucking president, not you, you lily-livered shit for brains. They're not... They're, like, it's interesting. Like, I read a lot of stuff uh, on, on Truman in this period... And most of them talk about how these guys didn't really like each other, Burns and Truman. Burns, there was no one with a better CV than Burns. As I mentioned in the last episode, he was at the 1919 Paris Peace Conference with Wilson. He'd been at Tehran. He'd been at Yalta. He was a senator, congressman, former fucking Supreme Court justice, had uh, been running the Office of War Mobilization for the president. This guy, insanely experienced. Right. Truman. Uh, I had a hat shot. Uh, yeah, failed haberdashery. Um, <clears throat> anyway, yeah. Burns, um, as soon as Truman took the oath of office, uh, Burns had a meeting with him for an hour to sort of fill him in on Tehran and Yalta. And, and according to Truman's own memoirs, he, he speaks very highly of Burns at this point. He's like, oh, I loved him. Loved Jimmy. Brought him in. Had a chat. Huge amount of respect for him. Great guy. Good friend. But that's uh, not the way that Burns spoke privately about Truman uh, or anyone else spoke about him. But anyway, whatever. They put their differences aside. They sat down and Burns briefed him. Um, Statinius, Secretary of State, came in. Russia expert Charles Boland came in. They also briefed uh, Truman on Tehran and Yalta. 
Burns returned to the White House early the next morning for more discussions with the president about Yalta, quickly became Truman's most trusted confidant, even if they still didn't really like each other. And best part is, during this period, Burns is calling him Harry. Well, Harry? And then a few people gave him a look and he went, I mean, uh, Mr. President. Um, I, oh, fuck, I've got to have a Leo. Leo McGarry clip for that. Uh, well, no, I can't find it quickly enough. But I know. No. They used to uh they used to always get stuck into people who didn't call him the president. Right. Mr. President. Yeah. Anyway. So Yeah. Forget and, that. And you're, and, and, and you're right. I mean, uh Truman might not like Burns, but yeah, he certainly recognizes his experience. I mean, he, he knows more about what's going on in the last eighty two days than Truman ever will. So they gotta bring this guy up to speed because as we said on our Caesar show, it doesn't matter that the person who is pretty much running the world is dead. The world goes on. The world is for the living. So FDR, this giant among men, is now no more. But the world goes on. There's future meetings to uh, to deal with. There's the Soviets to deal with. Life doesn't stop. And so they've got to hit the ground running. And these guys have got to get him up to speed. And he's the one who's going to be making the decisions that they that they're going to carry out. So, again, this is... This is crunch time for everybody, and and the world doesn't stop. Everything has to keep going. Indeed. The other guy that uh, started sucking up to Truman pretty quickly was Avril Harriman. Yeah. Uh, He He took a red eye. (laughs) Yeah, he flew straight back from Moscow and basically seems to have forgotten at some point that at the end of the Yalta conference, he himself said that the agreements regarding Poland would have to be renegotiated from scratch yeah. uh, in Moscow because now he goes to Truman claiming that the Russians had broken their word regarding Poland. Now, Henry Stimson, Secretary of War, didn't agree with that assessment. Admiral Ley didn't agree with that assessment. Ley said that he left Yalta convinced that the Soviets didn't want a free government in Poland and that the Yalta agreements were going to be open to multiple interpretations. Um, But unfortunately, no one could find official copies of the minutes of either the Cairo, Tehran or Yalta meetings to give to Truman to read... So he had no official record of what was actually discussed and agreed upon. He's just who's the record ta- keeper? He's just having to take what they tell him from what they can remember at face value. Um, I like this former president Herbert Hoover called uh-huh. Truman really dumb in uh, some of his private correspondence. He's not dumb. He's not just dumb. He's really dumb. Really dumb was Hoover's assessment of him. So there you go, man. But again, Truman, like like we were saying earlier, he, he is not going to know anything more than what these guys tell him. And so the fact that, that uh, Harriman flies all the way back from Moscow and he says, look, I'm telling you now the Russians are breaking everything. But then he pulls, he pulls another stunt. He goes, FDR knew this. And I'm here to tell you, I want to make sure you knew, like FDR knew, the Russians can't be trusted and they're break, breaking their agreements. I mean, for Truman, who's sitting behind that desk, has got to be thinking, oh, if that's what FDR thought, 
then it must be true, and I'm going to assume that's the truth and act off that. So I thought that was pretty clever of Harry Hopkins, uh, of uh, Harryman, to uh, to stylize it that way. Mm. So it was Harriman's version of the truth regarding the Poland agreements that Truman ran with in his first meetings with Molotov. Now, he met with Molotov twice on April 22nd and April 23rd. Uh, remember, after Roosevelt's death, Stalin agreed to send Molotov to the first UN meeting out of respect for Roosevelt. Yeah. They they decided not to participate um, after the whole burn incident, etc. But then he'd, he'd relented. And Truman invited Molotov to stop in Washington on his way to San Francisco for the United Nations conference, which was going to happen in late April. Now, Truman and his advisors kind of disagreed on how he should handle this meeting. Not only was it Truman's first meeting with a Soviet official, it was his first meeting with any Russian ever. Okay. Uh, and so, obviously, this is a big this is a big thing. He's going to meet right. with Molotov. If this goes well, it could establish or maintain the the relationship that Roosevelt had worked so hard to build with mm-hmm. Stalin. If it doesn't go well, it could, yeah. you know, it, he could basically shit the bed here. And um, so they. They have, they have a lot of conversations with him, and he's getting different advice from different advisors. Right, but by the time it's all said and done, when uh, Molotov walks into the room, he has decided to adopt the Harriman point of view, much to the chagrin of uh, everyone else who didn't agree with that. I thought it was interesting that before Molotov meets with the president. He met with Statinius and Anthony Eden, who were also paying their respects, you know, to FDR. And of course, these these guys are going to get these foreign ministers are going to get into it very quickly. And of course, the one topic that's on everybody's mind is trying to redo Yalta. And they immediately get into a um, verbal fisticuffs over Poland, the main issue that has been stopping any kind of progress as far as keeping this very an intimate relationship that FDR and Stalin had worked out, keeping it, keeping it going. So again, they just get right into it, trying to figure out what to do about uh, Poland because their ambassadors in Moscow have been stuck for quite some time and there's been no progress made. Mm. Well, I actually read that uh, Molotov first met with Truman on April 22nd. Then Mm. he met with the foreign ministers. Then he went back for a second meeting with Truman. But anyway, before the meetings, um, Harriman is sort of positioning this to Truman as this new barbarian invasion from the east in the form of a Soviet army, telling Truman that he has to confront them, he has to put his foot down. Um, Harriman's argument is that the Americans have leverage over the Russians because the Russians are going to need American money in order to rebuild, and they could use that as uh, as a weapon against them. Um, now, uh, former ambassador to the USSR, Joseph Davies, he was the US ambassador to the Soviet Union in 37 and 38. He had a much more moderate view and, and was basically saying to Truman, listen, you, you need to be careful here. If you have a harsh first meeting, it will send the wrong signal to the Russians. Uh, you know, already the, the trust built up was fairly delicate. Uh, they inherently don't trust us because they see us as imperialists and capitalists. Right. We've invaded their country before. 
you got to be you got to tiptoe through the tulips on this one, motherfucker. But uh, <laughs> he said, you know, if it goes bad, the Russians could pull out of the United Nations again, destroying everything Roosevelt worked for. Um, they could go it alone and develop their own international agreements. This isn't going to serve American interests. Uh, you don't want to get off on the wrong foot. So no pressure. Truman's daughter, Margaret, who was 21 years old at the time, sort of apparently sat in on some of these meetings, which is a little bit of Vanka Trumpy for my money. Um, yeah. Uh, she later wrote that it was difficult for him to reconcile the conflicting advice of hardliners like Harriman and the Secretary of the Navy, James Forrestal, with the softer approach recommended by Davies and Stimson and Morgenthau and guys like that. But Truman, so it's kind of confusing. So Truman has the first meeting with Molotov, which seems to go okay. Then Molotov mm-hmm. has his meetings with the foreign ministers. And then he has a second meeting with Truman on April 23rd, where, depending on which source you believe, it goes horribly wrong or it was fairly banal. Um, the, the traditional telling of it is that Truman got tough with Molotov. At least that's the way Truman like to portray it, and certainly the way that Molotov seems to have remembered it, although that's not how it's portrayed in either the official American or Soviet accounts of the meeting. But certainly everyone who wrote about it said that uh, Truman just got really, really tough. His pendergast, his Trump persona came out. (laughs) Truman got all Trumpy on them. Yeah. Well, let me ask about that. I mean, if, if, if he got as nasty... As he, as we're led to believe by his his um, writings and Molotovs later back in the 1970s, would you want that in the official record if you were the United States or USSR? I mean, because it's not in there. You just wonder if that if it might have been a decision to not put it that in there if it truly got as um, as heated as both sides claim unofficially, of course. Yeah, well, I mean, I just assumed that the official record would be a factual account of these sorts of meetings, um, but apparently this one isn't. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, uh, the, the telling of the story seems to be that this is all about Poland again, and Truman was frustrated that um, the foreign ministers hadn't been able to accomplish anything yet again, mm-hmm. and Molotov is calmly explaining Russia's position, which is, look, like, listen... I know Poland's important to you, but Poland's a long fucking way away from you. It really doesn't have a lot to do with you. It's right on our border, as right. we've gone over time and time again. It was, it's been used to invade us twice in living memory. It's really fucking critical to us that whoever's the government there moving forwards is... We can trust, basically, not to mm-hmm. fuck us over and, and allow us to be invaded again. So... We're not trying to be cunts here, but we we just want to make sure that the structure of the government next time is going to serve our interests. It what doesn't matter to you. It's on the other side of the fucking planet. It's got nothing to do with you. Just <laughs> don't get in the way of us protecting our security. Trump, Trump, Truman, <laughs> Trumpin, um, apparently interrupted Molotov on at least three occasions as Molotov's trying to explain their position on Poland, got all, then sort of went all ballistic on his ass and demanded that the Soviets include representatives from London in the discussions. 
According to Molotov, Truman said, why do you frame the question in such a way that we cannot agree with you? It's intolerable. I thought, said Molotov, what kind of president is he? I said, I cannot talk with you if you take such a tone. He stopped short a bit, rather stupid to my mind, and he had a very anti-Soviet mindset. That's why he began in that tone he wanted to show who was boss. Then he began to talk with us more respectfully and calmly. He talked modestly about himself. There are millions like me in America, but I am the president. Then he played piano. Nothing special, of course, but not badly. He was far from having Roosevelt's intellect. A big difference. They had only one thing in common. Roosevelt had been an inveterate imperialist too. Ooh, yeah. But but like you were saying earlier, I mean, just right there, just the decision he makes, that immediately changes the tone of the entire Soviet-American relations. Because you know Molotov is going to go back as ver- verbatim or as best he can close to that and tell Stalin, because you know the types of questions that Stalin is going to ask. And all of that's going to go back. And, and what Tr- uh, Truman hasn't figured out is Molotov is nothing more than a mouthpiece. He doesn't make decisions. He doesn't decide on policy. He spits out whatever Stalin tells him to, and he reports back to Stalin. And so yelling at this guy isn't going to get anything done, but his tone and his treatment of Stalin's representative is going to make it back to uh, Stalin, and he's not going to forget that. Yeah. Now, according to Truman's telling of the story in his memoirs, Mm -hmm. Molotov said, I have never been talked to like that in my life, to which Truman replied, carry out your agreements and you won't get talked to like that. Snap. I mean, this is his first meeting. Yeah. Can you picture an American president talking like that to somebody? Well, yes, I can now, obviously. (laughs) Trump yelled at the Australian prime minister in their first phone call and hung up on him. Um, But, you know, so there, there is a lot of similarities, I think, between Truman and Trump. Truman... Foul businessman. Trump's had lots of foul businesses, as we talked about on the Caesar show. His businesses have, on average, gone into bankruptcy every three years. Um, both are dumb, by all accounts. Both, you know, like to take a strongman, arrogant sort of attitude into these sorts mm-hmm. of conversations. Uh, both, I think, have tiny penises uh, behind the scenes. It's um, yeah. Uh, but, yeah, like, outside of Trump and Truman... Um, it's kind of, yeah, it's an astounding uh, tact to take in high diplomacy, particularly where they are right now in their relationship. I mean, I'm talking, uh, you know, 1945. Um, but as I said, neither the official nor the Soviet records of the meeting contain anything that harsh. Now, the Americans initially saw the meeting as a great success. They were very pleased with how it went. Oh, Truman... Truman said to Joseph Davies afterwards that he delivered a one-two right to the jaw. Oh, God. Uh, He's a diplomat. Uh, oh, my God. Uh, yeah, not. Um, Admiral Lay said the president spoke to Molotov unadorned by the polite verbiage of diplomacy, <laughs> which I think is a nice way of saying he was a dick, uh, yeah. pretty much. Charles Bolin, Charles yeah. Bolin, who was uh, there translating for Truman, later recalled how I enjoyed translating Truman's sentences. They were probably the first sharp words uttered during the war by an American president to a high Soviet official. But that doesn't um, make it a good thing. That doesn't make it something to be admired. 
Yeah, exactly. True. Uh, sorry, Boland said that uh, the difference lay less in substance than in tone. He said Roosevelt probably probably would have conveyed the same message, but in a more diplomatic and smoother mm-hmm. fashion. Even Harriman, who had sort of advised Truman to take a firm stance, said he was taken aback by the harshness of the president's tone. Damn. Yeah. So this it's- marked a turning point in Soviet-American relations. Yeah. And, and I don't want to jump too far ahead, but the reason this is important is because in the spring of 1945, Stalin, who owns... Eastern Europe still hasn't quite decided what to do with it, how to administer it. And because these are his military conquests, and you can say these are his spear one territories, much like Alexander, and, and everybody should know, certainly Admiral Leahy knows, that the Soviet troops, whatever territory they have taken, they're not giving up. They would be fools to give them up. So here's Stalin still trying to decide how to finagle Eastern Europe, because for, technically he's liberating it. We all know he's going to keep it, but how is he, how is he going to sell that to the Americans and to the British? And then here's Truman yelling at his ambassador. I mean, not exactly doing himself any favors when he needs to be schmoozing this guy, at least on the surface, because Stalin's got some very important decisions to make. Now, to Molotov, this attitude by Truman, the way he treated him, meant the end of the era of cooperation between the Soviets and the Americans. He told Stalin and the Americans that the basis of collaboration between them had been the assumption that the three governments would deal with each other as equal partners. And there had not been a case where one or two of the three had attempted to impose their will on the other. It was about full cooperation. It was about open dialogue amongst equals. And Molotov said that was the only basis of cooperation that was acceptable to the Soviets. Um, Now, Valentin Bereshikov, who was with Molotov, he was Stalin's interpreter at Yalta, and he was now working for Molotov on the trip. He also recalled Truman's behavior as what he called harsh and threatening And he said that even though Molotov had the courtesy not to mention it during the meetings with Truman, he was well aware of Truman's comment to the New York Times in 1941 about uh, letting Germany kill as many Russians as possible and let the Russians kill as many Germans and help them both to kill as many as possible of each other. So he kind of had this already this this impression of Truman as not being very friendly to the Russians. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and just the meeting, the first meeting with Truman, first two meetings, confirmed in both Molotov and um, Bereshikov's minds that Roosevelt's policy of equal partnership and friendship had been abandoned in favour of a new one that saw the Russians as enemies or rivals rather than partners. Yeah. Uh, guess what happened to Brezhikov, by the way? What? He died age 82 in L.A., where he was the professor of Cold War history at Occidental College in Los Angeles. That would have been a cool course to take with him. Yeah, it wouldn't have been great yeah. to get him on the show to, if we'd yeah. done this 20 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, now, as as you were saying earlier, Stalin at the time 
was trying to figure out what he was going to do with Eastern Europe. And it, and it seems like he didn't, at this point in time, really think that the Eastern European countries were going to require a Soviet-style, single-party, communist government approach. Mm-hmm. He still thought the Soviet experience was unique, socialism in one country, that kind of stuff. He seemed to believe that the Soviets would be able to coexist with other left-leaning people's democracies in Eastern right. Europe, and that they would eventually transition into communist states over 10 to 15 years, but there was no sense of urgency. There was no idea at this point in time, as far as we can tell from the documents that have been released in uh, Russia, that Stalin had any kind of grand plan for world conquering, which is interesting because Churchill certainly seems to think Stalin had that plan. Harriman seems to think Stalin had that plan. But as it turns out, Stalin didn't have that plan at this stage. In March of 1945, he told Marshal Tito of Yugoslavia, today socialism is possible even under the English monarchy. Revolution is no longer necessary everywhere. In May of 1946, he told Polish leaders, in Poland there is no dictatorship of the proletariat and you don't need it there. The democracy that you have established in Poland, in Yugoslavia and partly in Czechoslovakia is a democracy that is drawing you closer to socialism without the necessity of establishing the dictatorship of the proletariat or a Soviet system. Yeah, because dur- during I find- the... Uh, I'm sorry, I was just going to say, during the Soviet Civil War, Lenin was constantly pushing the dictatorship of the proletariat. You know, it's like, yes, we all need to come together and help each other and, and have the Communist Party, but you have to have an executive in this. And so that, you know, almost like a heavy hand And what Stalin is saying here, that's not really needed here because we can have, as long as they're left-leaning parties and they're, and they're pro-Soviet Union, we can, we can tolerate other types of governments. Let's try to figure this out. Maybe we can just find, figure out a way to work hand-in-hand hand with that, and we don't have to come hard on, down on these countries. And again, that for Stalin, considering everything that his country's been through, that's a pretty moderate stance to take. But as we're about to see, that's quickly going to go out the window when his... Probably one of the main reasons he was doing that was FDR, and then obviously FDR is, is not there anymore. Well, no, even in March of 1946, he's telling the Poles that they don't need a dictatorship. That they mm-hmm. can, so that's, you know, a good year after FDR's dead. What I, what I think we're going to see as time progresses here is Stalin didn't really have any intention of uh, annexing, effectively, Eastern Europe. And 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 you know forcing communist uh, Soviet style governments on them, but because the West thought he was going to do that, they reacted in such a way that forced his hand, and he had to do that in order to protect them economically and militarily, or so he thought. Um, so they, so he. So Western, maybe he has different plans, but the way he's going to get treated by Truman and the changes that come after Yalta is like, okay, well, if that's the way it's going to be, I'm really going to have to take care of my, you know, Western, Western border, which is East, Eastern Europe. 
Yeah, I, look, I, we'll, we'll see how it plays out. But, I mean, it's kind of like you get a dog and if you think the dog's a bad dog and you kick the dog a lot and you tell it it's a bad dog, it'll be, turn it into a bad good. dog. Yeah, it'll yeah. bite you eventually. Uh, you're, the way that you treat people and animals, and as it turns out, Soviet dictators, uh, can... <laughs> now, obviously, we're not saying Stalin was a saint here, uh, and, and as right. we've tried to stress all along, Stalin is trying to look out for the, Stalin, basically, and, and, and his country, and he's trying to protect it economically and militarily, and he's going to do whatever he has to do to do that. Doesn't care how many people he needs to roll over the top of to achieve the larger objectives. All I'm saying mm-hmm. is, based on the evidence available to us, it does not look like at this stage Stalin had any intention of taking over Eastern Europe, but the British and the Americans, some of them, thought he did, and so they acted accordingly. Gotcha. Okay. Now, of course, he wanted these states to be linked politically and strategically to the Soviet Union so they would protect the Soviet Union's interests. But, you know, there's, there's ways and means of doing that that don't require a heavy-handed approach. But, as you said, now that FDR was dead, his relationship and position with the US does change somewhat. And um, on... April 24th of 1945, the Soviet armies encircled Berlin, uh, which was moving a little bit faster than I think they had originally agreed to with the West. He decided he's going to take Berlin. Now, this is pretty fucking brutal, man, the taking of Berlin, um, which I know you'll cover in detail on your World War II show when you get up to it in 20 years. But um, <laughs> it, it, the Red Army was probably, the, the surrounded Berlin was probably the most powerful ground force ever assembled in human history. Uh, and Berlin fought it out to the, the last second. Mm-hmm. Um, but eventually they exhausted their rations Thousands of people were committing suicide every day out of fear of what would happen when the Soviets took them over. Uh, when did Hitler top himself? April. Oh, oh fuck. 30th. Is it April? April, yeah. April 30th? Yeah. 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 So um, six days after the Soviets encircled Berlin. Um now, at the same time, sort of around April 24th, at uh, the small town of Torgo on the Elbe River, just northeast of Leipzig, American and Soviet forces finally linked up, uh, which was a pretty, pretty big deal. I think they had some pretty, pretty big parties. <laughs> right. A lot of stories to tell. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the, they celebrated. One American officer said it was like having an Iowa picnic with food, hugs, and even some celebratory gunfire. There are, old, there are photographs of smiling Soviet and American soldiers shaking hands, hugging each other. Some of them made front-page news. And, you know, I think it was very symbolic for a lot of people around the world, uh, not only signalling the approaching end of the European war, but 
you know, this may be symbolising the end of the old Europe and a birth of a new Europe where the Germans were defeated and the source of power had shifted. Uh, One notable thing with these photographs is the British and the French are absent from them. Yeah. The old colonial powers that had fought over control of Europe for centuries are gone and uh, now it's the the Russians and the Americans that are going to determine the fate, the future of Europe. Yeah, and now that um, Stalin's troops are, uh, have entered um, the suburbs of Berlin, it's time for him to, uh, and there's so many different ways to look at this, but basically it's time for the, the real contest as far as what's going to be done with Poland to get underway. And so he is going to send a, tersely worded letter to uh to uh churchill and to truman and just pretty much let them know where he's coming from and what he's thinking yeah he writes a letter where he says you evidently (coughs) you evidently do not agree that soviet union is entitled to seek in poland a government that would be friendly to it that the soviet government cannot agree to the existence in Poland of a government hostile to it. This is rendered imperative, among other things, by the Soviet people's blood freely shed on the fields of Poland for the liberation of that country. I do not know whether a genuinely representative government has been established in Greece, or whether the Belgian government is a generally democratic one. The Soviet Union was not consulted, when those governments were being formed. Nor did it claim that the right to interfere in those matters because it realises how important Belgium and Greece are to the security of Great Britain. I cannot understand why in discussing Poland no attempt is made to consider the interests of the Soviet Union in terms of security as well. One cannot but recognise as unusual a situation in which two governments those of the United States and Great Britain, reach agreement beforehand on Poland, a country in which the USSR is interested first of all and most of all, and placing its representatives in an intolerable position, try to dictate to it. Damn. And, and I don't care what your, <clears throat> what your politics are. I mean, you have to admit... He's absolutely right. I mean, the, the Americans and the British get to determine the type of government in uh, Belgium because that is that is obviously in uh, Western Europe. It's very important to the British who's running that country. And like you said, Poland is right next to the Soviet Union. How could they not have a say? The The idea that the Americans are trying to tell them exactly what to do in that country, again, makes no sense to Stalin whatsoever. And this is not about manipulating or lying or uh, sleight of hand or trying to get your your people in there. This is, I mean, this is just basic direct honesty. How could we not have a powerful say-so in who's going to be in this country? It is on our border. You're getting to decide the governments of all these other countries. We're trying to have this one, and you're giving us holy hell even before Yalta. It truly must make no sense to Stalin, and he's probably got to realize he's, if it were up to them, he would have absolutely no say, but we all know that he's already determined months ago exactly the makeup of the new Polish government. Now, Churchill responded with a long letter where he went on about a whole bunch of things. He claims he that- lied. 
He lied his ass off. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> yes. You want to continue? Yeah. No, it just, oh my God. Let, let, I'll just give you a little bit of it. Cause it, it just, I mean, there's a lot to admire about Churchill, but he just fucking lied. Anyway. So Churchill says, I, I must say that the things have worked out, say that the way things have worked out in Yugoslavia certainly does not give me the feeling of a 50-50 interest as between our countries. Marshal Tito has become a complete dictator. He has proclaimed that his prime loyalties are to the Soviet Union. Although he allows members of these of the royal Yugoslav government to enter his government, the only number six as against 25 of his own nominees. We have the impression that they are not taken into consultation on matters of high policy, and that is becoming a one-party regime. But then he goes on to say, look, we don't care what kind of government is in Greece. Whatever the people want, we totally support that. All we care about is free elections and the secure ballots. As long as you do that, we don't care. And we know, and like we've covered in the other shows, I mean, the, uh, the British troops brought in some pretty impressive weapons to kill a lot of the uh, the communists and the people who were uh, trying to establish a government that Britain did not want. So Churchill is bold-faced lying here, saying we'll accept whatever kind of government the people want. We just want it to be a fair decision. So he's lying. Stalin knows he's lying. And so Stalin's going to do what he, what he wants and, what, like you said, what's best for his country. Again, because it's on his border. Yeah, for people who don't remember, because we probably did this months and months ago, but <laughs> in December of 1944, with the help of the British Army, the Greek police uh, opened fire on a group of 200,000 peaceful protesters outside of Greek Parliament in Athens. Of course, there was this ultra-right-wing uh, monarchy-supported government in Greece that had been re-established after the Nazis had been kicked out. Uh, the, the, the communist, socialist, lefty underground had, had worked really hard to kick the Nazis out. They had fought tooth and nail to get rid of them. And then as soon as they get the Nazis out, the British basically reinstall this right, ultra-right-wing ultra royal government. So people were peacefully protesting, and the Greek police, again with the support of the British Army, opened fire on them. Then a couple of days later, the British general in command there, Scobie, imposed martial law, ordered aerial bombing of the working class districts of Athens. Uh, thousands of people were killed. 12,000 people were rounded up and sent to gulags in the Middle East. But Churchill's going, look, we just want free elections. The democratic process is like, really? That's, yeah. that's your view of how the democratic process works, really? Anyway, and, and, and I just want to end Churchill mm -hmm. ends his letter with neither we nor the Americans have any military or special interest in Poland. All we seek in material things is to be treated in a regular way between friendly states. So, again, just complete bullshit. Mm, he suggests in the letter that his interpretation of their percentages agreement means that both parties would have a say in how these countries were going to be set up, but neither would treat the other like a subordinate. He saw signs of influence or spheres of influence as being influence, not control. Stalin sees them as being control, but I would argue that Churchill wouldn't allow the Soviets to interfere in Greece and places like that either. Um, and, and fortunately for him, Stalin didn't. When the British Army were rounding up thousands and thousands of communists 
uh, socialists in Greece, Stalin didn't bat an eyelid, didn't say boo. Yeah. He pretended and, to lose their phone number. Yeah. yeah. So that's all he's saying is, look, I gave you a free, I gave you a free hand in Greece. Give me a free hand in Poland and just shut the fuck up. Like, what's the big deal? Yeah. But for some reason, neither the British nor the Americans were prepared to go along. Anyway, we've talked about that in nth degree in the older shows. Now, the Americans, of course, all they wanted was self-determination for all nations. Oh. As long as no one tried to interfere with Latin America uh, <laughs> and the Monroe Doctrine, all right. nations except the ones that were part of our imperialist empire. Everybody, but everything else, don't look over here. Look into my eyes. Look into my eyes. Don't look around my eyes. Don't look around my. Look into my eyes. As far as Europe and Asia were concerned, America wanted full, unrestricted economic access, but. As we will see, there's very little Truman can do about it at this point because the Red Army is there, as we said a million times. Once you're there, you're there. There's not a lot you can do. Right. Now, the great irony in all of this is Truman is going to go through several phases in his thinking towards how to deal with Soviet Russia, but eventually he will end up um, thinking because he's going to learn that this is the, it is going to be told this is the best way to handle the Soviets, is that setting up spheres of influence can be a good thing as long as you're the one setting up the spheres and you're the one that's dominating the important areas. So I can't stop the Soviets. And again, this is he's assuming that Stalin's going to do this. I can't stop them from trying to create, create spheres of influence. So the only thing I can do is match their game and try and do it even better. So eventually America is going to fully give into this and create zones of, of control and zone, spheres of influence trying to beat Russia at their own game, even though they're assuming Russia is going to do this, but that truly had not been decided by Stalin yet. Now, one of uh, Truman's advisors, uh, although he wasn't very close to Truman, at least at this stage, had a very different view of how America should... Um, approach the Soviets at this point. This guy is, of course, George Keenan Thompson. Uh, very popular, long-standing <laughs> member of Saturday Night Live. And, Smart uh, ass. Expert Kenan. on Russia. Oh, sorry, George Kennan, yes. Kennan. Yeah, thank Kenan. you for pointing that out to me. Now, he, just to remind people, had been running the U.S. Embassy in Moscow during the Alta Conference. And he sent a letter to his friend, Charles Boland, Roosevelt's interpreter, where he said that he thought eventually the Soviets would have to be rewarded for their war effort at the expense mm -hmm. of Eastern and Central Europe. That would have been the best thing we could do for ourselves and for our friends in Europe and the most honest approach we could have tried to restore life in the wake of war on a dignified and stable foundation, he wrote. He was even prepared to accept the partition of Germany and creating a West European Federation. Uh, and in mid-1944, he wrote a long memorandum on the changes he'd seen in Soviet foreign policy over the past seven years. And while he wasn't happy about the Soviets trying to create zones of influence or dependent states in Eastern Europe. By the time Yalta comes along in early 45, he kind of saw this as inevitable and, in fact, 
probably the best solution from both a moral and practical point of view. You know, as he said before, like these guys have poured the blood of millions of their citizens uh, across Europe to defend these places from the Nazis. It's only right that they should have a, a measure of influence on what happens uh, moving forwards. Right. Now, it, with this with this situation that's in flux militarily, politically, because the war's not over, um, Churchill is the, is one of the first ones, if not the first one, to understand that spheres spheres of influence is one thing, but forget percentages deal percentage deals. If you have two groups that are opposed ideologically and culturally, that is the beginning of creating tension. That is the beginning of cultural misunderstandings. That is the beginning of those tensions becoming something a lot more practical. And that kind of thing can lead to a conflict which could lead to a military conflict. So here Churchill's going... Churchill's starting to think spheres of influence, influence is one thing, but if I have my side and you have your side and we're completely different culturally in every other way and we see each other as the enemy, we will eventually become each other's enemy and there will be another war. And so what seemed to be working for them for a while, spheres of influence, seems to be the catalyst for a future war that absolutely nobody wants, but he's certainly afraid of, especially in Britain's reduced capacity militarily. In a long letter he wrote to Stalin on April 28th, Churchill said, There's not much comfort in looking into a future where you and the countries you dominate, plus the communist parties in many other states, are all drawn up on one side, and those who rally to the English-speaking nations and their associates or dominions are on the other. He's got a so, point. Well, he's got a point, but, you know, Stalin could have said, well, why does the British Empire exist? Please explain that to me. Why don't you have, haven't you spent 300 years building the British Empire of countries that, you know, have their own economic block and try and keep the other countries out? Like, you know, what the, what the fuck are you talking about? Right. I, I think what he means specifically here is that when you have the British Empire and you have the American Empire and you have the French Empire and you have the German Empire and you have all these different empires, that's one thing. You know, everybody has their colonies. But if it comes down to now, it's just two sides oppose each other and they've got all these different other countries on their side and they're staring at each other. It's it's like with, with the... Um, the battle of the wars of the diadokes It's eventually if there's just two sides, one side might be thinking eventually they're going to come after us. And so it sets up an automatic ad, ad, ad adversarial relationship. I think what he means is if the number is just two, that that poses a threat to, to the world because the, each side is going to assume the other side is their enemy. And that's just me guessing. But I think, I think that's what he means. You so you're saying that having five, uh, economic blocks maintaining yeah. a balance of power is okay, but when it comes down to it two, it muddies the water. Yeah, mm. yeah. Two, two is bad. Two is right out. <laughs> Churchill <laughs> continued to write. It is quite obvious that their quarrel would turn the world to pieces, and that all of us leading men on either side who had anything to do with that would be shamed before history. Even embarking on a long period of suspicions of abuse and counter-abuse, and of opposing policies would be a disaster 
hampering the great developments of world prosperity for the masses, which are attainable only by our trinity. I hope there is no word or phrase in this outpouring of my heart to you, which unwittingly gives offence. If so, let me know. But do not, I beg you, my friend Stalin, underrate the divergences which are opening about matters which you may think are small to us, but which are symbolic of the way the English-speaking democracies look at life. I He was making some good points. I mean, I mean, yeah, because the Americans and the British have a different mentality and things that might not seem important to Stalin do rub the Western powers the wrong way. And so I think at the very end of that letter, he was, he was as, as honest and sincere as he could possibly be. You know, the appearance of things does matter. And we, we just got to be able to work this out and we got to be able to talk about it. And of course, here's Truman wrecking everything with his harsh words to Molotov, but Churchill is trying to salvage this situation. Uh, and in reality, the policies of Britain and the Soviet Union were both leading to that division. And the only thing the USA could really do was to accept it and try and make the best of it moving forwards. But then there was another fuck up. <laughs> so the State Department in the US had apparently neglected to pass along a message from Stalin to Truman, disapproving of the American announcement of Germany's surrender on May 8th. Mm. Because the Germans had surrendered to the Americans and the British. And Stalin had to point out that under their agreements, two of them weren't able to accept the surrender of Germany. It had to be all three that agreed to anything. Right. So Stalin had tried to remind them in this this uh, uh, telegram that Russia was still technically, the Soviet Union was technically still at war with Germany. And they couldn't consent to the terms of any surrender unless all three of them consented at the same time. Mm-hmm. Now, the German surrender to the Soviets did happen a few hours later at their own ceremony at Karlshorst, but <laughs> that wasn't the point. The, the Americans and the British had agreed to a surrender without consulting the Soviets, which was a huge mm. breach of their uh, discussions. But what made matters worse is the Western Allies declared victory on May 8th. State Department apparently didn't bother to give Truman's, uh, Stalin's telegram to Truman. Now, obviously, probably a lot of celebrations going on at the <laughs> declaration of the surrender of Germany. They're probably shit-faced drunk on champagne and banging each <laughs> other still, in side rooms and alleys stay, and whatever. <laughs> so, yeah. so one person in Washington has yeah. to stay sober. Well, you, uh, Barry, Barry, <laughs> take, take your dick out of that pumpkin. Stan, uh, oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Barry. We drew short straws, and you're the one who has to no say so sober and can't get your dick wet tonight because right. someone's got to pass on the news. Right. Someone's got to keep an eye on the TV, Barry. Apparently, that's you. And he said, "Right, I got you." And then he went about fucking the pumpkin anyway. <laughs> now, what happened was the the Western Allies declared victory on May eighth. The Soviets declared it on May May ninth. Now, as part of the Soviet celebrations, they released blimps into right. the sky, 
uh, barrage balloons, as they're known, uh, as part of their celebrations. Mm-hmm. Now, I that's not the first thing that comes to my mind when I want to celebrate something. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to release no. blimps in the Woo! air. But hey, I'm not Russian. Um, now, British and American ships that were based at Murmansk, which was the the major port that, uh, which is where the Allies were supplying the Soviets, saw these blimps and decided they were attack blimps and fired oh, at them. Oh shit! Killing one person and wounding several others. So ever- yeah. that was a fuck up. Well, killer balloons, really. <laughs> okay. Well, they, they'd all seen the footage Se- of the secret weapon of of the one the that went down. The, <laughs> the attack of the killer balloons. Uh, what was the What was the zeppelin that went down? Um, oh, oh the, shit. I can't fucking remember. Oh, oh the humanity that one. <laughs> and uh, they went. Oh no, it's going to crash into us. And those things are death traps. Anyway, this was just sort of an indication, perhaps of the breakdown in communications between the parties, uh, yeah. this this failure to all agree on the terms of the German surrender at the same time. Now, also going on behind the scenes at this time, there was talk in both Britain and America of a potential war with the Soviet Union. Ouch. Now, I, I just want to throw something out here real quick. The Eisenhower Institute uh, at Gettysburg College estimates that that the between the Americans and the British, we had about three million men in uniform, you know, in around Europe, whatever. The Soviet Union had five point seven million men in uniform in and around Europe. And as as we're probably going to go into the next show, this talk, which makes no sense to me, is actually gaining ground and gaining momentum and being taken seriously. Uh, by some circles within the U.S. government. But if you've got 3 million men and the other side has almost 6 million men, probably not the best time to start a war with them. Yeah. But, you know, I guess they were already seeing this as perhaps inevitable. Right. They were, they were, Mexi- they were Americans, not Americans. <clears throat> A Polish ambassador at the UN conference in May 1945 told the head of the London Poles, Mikhalishek, the idea of war with Russia is said to be gaining ground in influential US circles, particularly army and navy, whose influence is strongly growing. He quoted the wife of Admiral Chester Nimitz, who, he said, is reputed not to be too bright herself and to be talking out of her husband's hat, who was referred to as having said that America is now stronger than after any other war, whereas Russia is now considerably weakened. Now is the time to strike. Now, we know, you and I know, our dear listeners know, if this sort of talk is going on, Stalin is hearing about it because he has spies everywhere. <laughs> I bet I bet Admiral Nimitz's wife was probably a Soviet spy as well. But yeah, I mean, he knows everything that's going on pretty much from the day that it's said. You know he's got to be hearing about the scuttlebutt. So he's dealing with Truman. He's dealing with Churchill and he knows that there's talk going on in both England and the UK, uh, sorry, fucking America, right. of 
potentially going to war with the Soviets after this one's completed. But... But it gets worse. Where are we with time? Uh, just over an hour, but we've, we had some delays, so maybe another few minutes. All right. On May 10th, Harriman convinced Truman to look tough by ending the Lend-Lease shipments to the Soviets. And Truman agreed. He pulled Harriman's- the Trump. <laughs> Yeah, one of the things Harriman said, look, one way to look tough is to cut off their supplies that we're giving them. Truman said, that's a very good idea. It's a wonderful idea. I love that idea. It's the best idea I've ever heard. It's so great, so great, that idea. So he signed a, uh, an executive order that said, no, nah, that's it, putting an end to Lend-Lease. Now, ships that were on their way to Murmansk Harbour were ordered to turn around. Now, it didn't just affect the Soviets. It affected the British as well because their Lend-Lease shipment stopped. But it turned out to be quite quickly a major disaster because everyone seems to have forgotten because they couldn't find the notes from Yalta (laughs) that they were expecting the Soviets to join them in the fight against the Japs in a couple of months. So on one hand, they're going, hey, Hey, you want to come over here and help us fight these guys? <laughs> uh, all right. All right. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah, that'd be great if you could come over and help us fight. Uh, but we're going to stop sending you shit because fuck you, we hate you. But if you could come over here and help us fight this war, that'd be really great. Yeah. Now, Harryman, when Harryman was talking to Truman, it's not like he said, cut the shipments now, turn the ships around. He was like, you know, if you want to look tough, maybe we should consider, you know, Stopping? No, but that's not. Truman turns it up to 11, immediately has the ships turn around the next day. This turns out to be a huge fucking nightmare. The Americans have got to lie to cover their ass saying this was never agreed to. But again, the people in the American United States State Department start hearing a lot of shit from their Soviet counterparts. This is a huge screw up. And I'm just trying to imagine what in the hell Truman was thinking by turning it off that fast and that that intensely. I haven't seen anyone get turned off of anything that quickly <laughs> since Vegas. Uh, I think we can do Vegas. It's been enough times past now. We can do yeah. we're back to doing Vegas jokes. Yeah. Now the Soviets, when they heard that their supply line had been cut off, they immediately called Under Secretary of State Joseph Grew, who was one of the authors of the presidential order. Right. And they said, is it true that our supplies have been cut off? And he went, what? No. <laughs> That's I've crazy nev- that, uh, that, no, that can't be. What? No. He, I look, he picked I'll, up his phone. Who? What? Fuck. Yeah. I will look into that and get back to you. Then he called them back and went, no, that's no, not true. No. Never, Puppy never, cock. never happened. Uh, don't know. you got to really stop listening to the fake news. Uh, that never, ever happened, nor would it nope. ever happen, nope. because we're Americans. We don't do that kind of that's thing. That's tacky. Right. No, no, that's beneath us. And then... I guess Truman signs another order saying, turn those ships around. Can you hear me? Turn those ships back around. 
so they they unrestrict the the shipment start up again but again the americans just basically lied to the russians and you know stalin's going to find out about this but the americans boldface lie turn the, the shipments back on but again it's just one of those more moments that didn't have to happen in the first place truman trying to maybe acting and having a trump moment takes this piece of advice from harriman and just turns it up extremely in a very unprofessional kind of way. And again, it just rocks the cart that is already, uh, that is very unstable so far ever since he has taken office. And my favorite anecdote from this is when it finally came out that it did happen, Truman, rather than take responsibility for it, (laughs) throws his entire State Department under the bus, including Joseph Grew, blames then, and that is when he adopted the motto... The buck stops here. Yeah. An iron curtain has descended across the continent. military buildup on the island of Cuba. The purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere. 